Here comes the right-hander stretch. And the pitch on the way, and it swung on, and the game is over. Boone may have hit it out. It will fly away. Brett Boone has hit it with a home run. My, oh, my. Would you believe it? The Mariners score Olivo. They score Hanson. They score Randy Wynn. And Grandma get out the right bread and mustard. It is Grand Salami time. The first Grand Slam home run that the Mariners have hit all year long. And it's a game winner. The Mariners win it by a score of 8-4. to four. My, oh, my. We had a chance to chat with former Mariners second baseman Brett Boone, the three-time All-Star, two-time Silver Slugger, four-time Gold Glove winner. Two different stints with the Mariners, starting with his rookie year in 1992 and coming back to the M's in 2001. Parts of seven seasons with the Mariners. And we start the conversation with Brett sharing some of his favorite memories in a Mariners uniform. A lot of great memories uh, from my time here. Uh, not only the, the the run we had in the early 2000s, starting with that 2001 team, actually starting with 2000, you know, was was a real good run for the Mariners. But uh, just the city and how how they embraced me and and uh, you know, because now after it's all said and done, and you know, I played in Cincinnati, I had a great time in Cincinnati, I had some stops in San Diego and Atlanta, but Seattle's my home. And uh, when I come back, I just just people on the street walking down the street last night, people yelling booty, what's going on? Uh, it's just it just brings back nothing but real good memories, and uh, I'll never forget my time here. Everyone remembers, of course, your run in the early 2000s. Everyone may not remember the Mariners were your original club coming yeah. up. What do you remember about those early days, the early boon? Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's <laughs> as a young player coming up, it, everything's kind of a fog to me. You know, I remember early on, but I remember coming from the minor leagues and, and just thinking, you know, having real high expectations, struggling in the beginning. And it's just so much every day. It's you're just trying so hard to to prove that you belong here, and and you're kind of you know your hair's on fire. And it's just who who's pitching tomorrow and what can I study and I, I got to prove to these guys I can do it. You know it's not just minor leagues. I can do it in the big leagues. And you fail and you, and, and you go through a lot of adversity. And you know the good ones they get knocked on their butt and they get back up and and they move on. And those are the ones that last and have a tenure in this game. But, yeah, those early years were, you know, kind of not scared, but just on edge all the time. Am I getting sent down? Am I, <laughs> right. am I here to stay? What is it? And, and then Lou came over and, and uh, you know, that 93. From, from 93, uh, about the midpoint on is where finally Lou just, boom, left me alone and let me play every day. And I had a real good second half. <laughs> then I got traded to the, to the Reds. And, you know, I went over. Danny came over here. And, uh I, I didn't really mind it because at that point, Lou and I were on really good terms, you know, and a lot of the press was thinking Brett and Lou are, are at odds, but it really wasn't like that. We had our times. Believe me, we had our moments early in, in 1993, but but uh, we had a good rapport when I left. I went on to Cincinnati, had some had some really fun, good years there. I got to go postseason a few times. You know, then it, it came full circle. And after 2000, I'd hurt my knee in, in San Diego, and, and I know Lou was advocating for me to come back to Seattle. And I remember talking to my agent and saying, let's, let's just sign a one-year deal and go play like hell and see what happens. And uh, that was the beginning of 2001, and, and the rest is history. But uh, yeah, I think it was one of those things that just meant to be. What was it like playing for Lou? Ah, favorite to this day. And uh, 
there's only one Lou. You know, a lot of people say that. There's only one Boone. I tell you, there's only one Lou for sure. He's just, they they, they broke the mold. And uh, Lou can be hard. It, it depends on your personality. Uh, if Lou respects you as a man, if he respects you as a player, he'll run through a brick wall for you. Mm. And if he doesn't respect you as a man and he doesn't respect you as a player, he can be pretty hard on you. But to this day, I, I got I got a chance. I was so fortunate in my career playing for some great managers, uh, and a lot of them I, I, I respected and enjoyed playing for. But if uh, push comes to shove, lose my favorite. You probably have a hundred, but do you have a favorite lose story? Ooh, yeah, you're right. I do have a hundred, <laughs> so I'll I'll try to keep it brief. Um, <laughs> I have a couple, you know, one once I was in Detroit and this is when Lou and I weren't seeing eye to eye and it was early in the 93 season and, and I was just up, you know, I got called up a few days earlier and cold day in Detroit and I made the third out and I popped one. I just missed hitting a homer. I popped it straight up to right center field to the warning track and it was one of those, as soon as I hit it, I knew I had just missed it. I knew it was going to go to the warning track, knew it was going to be out. Well, back then... You know, I, I was kind of emotional each and every at bat. If I didn't get a hit, I wasn't happy about it. And uh, I remember taking the uh, – Dave Magadan was playing first base. Tino had the day off, I believe. And he threw me that first ground ball in between innings. And, and I was still kind of smarting from, from making the out, the, my, you know, my last at bat. I made the third out. And I took the first ground ball, and I just fired it. A little high. Magadan didn't even jump for it. At that point, he's like, you know, I'm, I'm sick of Boone getting mad and throwing the ball over my head. He didn't even make an effort. And it was like it was in slow motion. It one, one hop, and it was old Detroit Stadium, small little dugout, and it hit Lou right in the side of the head, and he goes down in the dugout. And I remember Omar's the shortstop, and Vizquel comes over to me and goes, Booney, you knocked the, the skipper out. And I said, you know what? Serves him right. <laughs> And I remember the inning. The inning ended, and uh, <laughs> it's old Detroit Stadium. And, and if people that haven't been there, I mean, the dugout is so small compared to these modern day stadiums. Rick Griffin's tending to him. He's got Lou sprawled out, laying on the bench, and and you know he's got blood coming out of his head, and you know big big knot on his head. And so I sit down in the corner of the dugout, and I'm thinking, "Geez, I'm in trouble. I knocked the skip out." <laughs> And, and all my teammates had my back. Nobody told him who it was. So he finally gets up, and he starts stomping around the dugout. He goes, who, who hit me? Who hit me? And nobody's saying a word. Blowers was there. Uh, it was Dave Magadan, Omar, or the guys that saw it. We were the guys in the infield. Nobody said a word. Now, fast forward, the game ends after the game. Tight quarters in that old Detroit stadium. And I was just start, it, the guilt was starting to get to me. And I walked into his... I walked into his office. I said, Skip, hey, Booney, what do you need? I said, uh, Skip, I just want to tell you, that ball that hit you, that that was me in between innings. I threw the – and he kind of looked at me. He goes, gee, you know, I I can't really say what he said, but he said, gosh, dang, Booney, you hit me right in the hats, all right. I know you didn't mean to do it. And I kind of got off my conscience, and I walked out. The next day, I get to the ballpark. I got sent down in the minor league, <laughs> and I'm going, "No way!" Now I'm, you know. But I mean, the stories go on and on. Uh, he was classic. I miss those times. I mean, he'd show up some days, and and uh, you know, nobody'd seen Lou all day during batting practice, whatever he might be in his office, and he'd appear at about six fifty-seven, hair a bit disheveled, 
get the hat on. Hey, Boone, what do we got tonight? And I'd look at Lou and I'd say, listen, if the tape is true to what we got to face tonight, we got this, Lou. We're going to hammer this guy. And he goes, all right, Boone, let's go. And and that's how Lou was. And he had that temperament. He, he gave the, especially the teams that he had, the veteran ball clubs that, that I played on under Lou, he really trusted his players. And he really trusted us to run the show and be prepared and uh, gave us a lot of rain. But, uh, man, he was entertaining. Uh, I can't I can't say enough about him. It's amazing to look back at the 2001, and we'll get to the team aspect in a moment, but your 2001 in particular was amazing. When you look back at what you did that year, what do you think about? It was just one of those magical years up until, up until that year. You know, I'd played on some great teams. Mm-hmm. In Cincinnati, I'd played on a really good team that went to the World Series, got beat by the Yankees in 1999, uh, 99 Braves. And I think we started to finish with 104, 105 games. And we'd just go out and steamroll people. And, you know, people were always talking about team chemistry and aura. And I just said, you know what? That's all a bunch of BS. It's get the best players and beat the crap out of your opponent. That changed in 2001 in my mind. Because for the first time, I started to believe in team chemistry. There was something special about that group of guys that were put together that particular year. And we, we kind of knew after April, and, and we definitely knew something special was going on uh, when we finished the, the month of May. You know, that, that team was so good, they always want to say, well, it might not have been the best. I mean, we had gold glovers and batting champs and MVPs on that team. We were really good. It just so happened that everything fell into place at the right time. Uh, a bunch of us had career years all at the same time. We didn't get hurt. Uh, you had Nelly and and Rhodes setting up Sasaki all had great years. You know, those were the years of Panero was a rookie, and he, he was in that fifth spot. Aaron Seeley, Moyer, and Garcia. You know, Edgar had a typical Edgar year. Johnny Olerud hit 300, drove in 100 like, like he did so many times. Uh, and then you had some unsung heroes. David Bell playing third base. Danny Wilson uh, handling that pitching staff. Cammy had a big year. And, and the guys like Mark McElmore, who played all over the place and did a great job wherever he was asked to play. Stan Javier, you know, Bone was in the clubhouse. Uh, it was just a special year. It was a veteran team, a lot of, a lot of ability, and a very confident team. And, it, and not from an egotistical standpoint, but it was just a look, it was just a glance that we knew how good we were. I mean, I remember that you're taking the field in the seventh inning, being down by two and just looking into the opponent's eyes. They knew we were going to come get them. And more times than not, we did. And, and it's kind of, you know, in that dugout, it'd get to a point where we're just looking at each other like, you know, we just did it again. <laughs> and, and we didn't want to disrupt it because we knew something was special was going on and we knew we'd probably never see anything like it again. So just enjoy the ride. Mm. And that's what we did. It's just unfortunate. And, you know, to this day, when I run into teammates from that particular team, we talk about it and it's like, how did we not finish the mm. deal? It was the magical year and, you know, a 9-11 hit and, and uh, you know, but it hit for everybody. And, and the, the, the nation was grieving, but going through a great postseason in, in baseball. I think we, we went in that Cleveland series that year. Knew we were going to win. It wasn't a. It was a foregone conclusion. It wasn't. Oh, we got to play good to win. No, this is over. And then I think we had handled the Yankees pretty good. No one. So we went to New York and thought this is over too. It wasn't a matter of are we going to win. We knew we were going to win. And I remember kind of stunned, sitting on that bus in New York when we had been eliminated, mm. just kind of looking at each other like, did that really happen? 
You know, and then everybody, of course, said because of what happened, 9-11, and it was New York's year. And then the miraculous uh, victory by, by uh, the Arizona yeah. Diamondbacks that year. So it wasn't, it wasn't that. It just goes to show you baseball is so fickle. It's why it's such a great game. When you think it's obvious, it's not the obvious. Uh, of course, looking back, that would have been great to to seal the deal that year and 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 do the whole the the whole thing. But it wasn't meant to be. And a lot of great friendships, a lot of great memories. Uh, still, best regular season team in the history of baseball. I can always say that. But man, it was a little bittersweet not to finish the deal. No doubt. Hey, you mentioned Cammy and. You two did something incredible, kind of overshadowed by what he did the rest of the ball game. But back-to-back home runs in the same inning, then he goes on to hit two more. What a day. How do you describe what happened that day in Chicago? Brad Boone again, and two more. Well hit, deep to right field. Goodbye baseball. Brad Boone with his second two-run homer here in the top half of the first inning. Now this would be some kind of baseball history if Cameron went deep. Again, back-to-back. It would be back-to-back home runs for two guys in the lineup twice in the same inning. If Cammy could do it, he had a home run to straightaway center field here in the first inning. Pitch on the way. Swinging a drive. Deep to center field. Holy smokes. He did it. He did it. Mike Cameron, a home run to center field for the second time. Boone and Cammy go back-to-back. Well, I hit my second homer. I'm sitting in the dugout thinking I'm pretty cool. And uh, Cammy, Cammy hits his second. Now we both think we're pretty cool. And Cammy goes, I don't think anyone's ever done that before, Boone. And I said, you're probably right. Come, come to find out nobody ever had. Then I struck out my next bat. He hit another one. And now I'm a background player. You know, I just had a good week in the first inning. And now I'm playing second fiddle to Mike. And uh, I go up my fourth at bat. I strike out again. Cammy hits another one. And now it's, you know, you hit two home runs in a game. That's a big day. You hit three, you're in rare air. But to hit four, there's a reason not too many people in the history of the game have ever done it. It's so unlikely. And the fact that he hit his fourth, I just said, you know, and it did register to me. I'm sitting there thinking, not too many people that have ever walked this earth did what you just did. And I remember my fifth at bat, I walked, and I was standing on first base. I I believe it was Paul Canerco. And I turned to Canerico. I said, Pauly, if there's ever an exception that Cammy could swing 3-0, it's right here. And he looked at me and he goes, you know what, Brett? I agree with you. I don't think anyone would have a problem with it. Just because no one's ever hit five in mm-hmm. a game. And he took, I, I believe if my memory serves me right, he took the 3-0 pitch down the middle. He swung at the 3-1, fouled it straight back. And 3-2, I was on first. He smoked the ball to right center. And I, I could tell right when he hit it, it wasn't enough. Mm. I knew it was going get to the, get the crowd excited, but I knew that ball was going on the warning track, and sure enough, it did. And, you know, he's probably 10 feet away from five. So uh, pretty special moment, uh, you know, and I tease Mike all the time. I said, you know, the older we get, one day I'm going to flip the script, and I'm going to be the one that hit the four, and you're going to be the one that, that hit two and, <laughs> and played second fiddle. But uh, pretty special day. Looking at your career, you accomplished so much. All-star games, silver sluggers, gold gloves, just go down the list. Playoff teams, great teams. What are you most proud of? I'm most proud of the fact that I played the game the way it was supposed to be played. I played this game hard every day. I showed up for my teammates, showed up rain or shine, played hurt. Uh, And I remember as a player, talking to a young player one day, and I said, "I I don't really care if you love me or hate me if you're not in my dugout. 
it, being an opponent I was talking about, I said, but you're going to respect me and you're going to respect how I play. And that's all I ever played for. You know, maybe off the field, a guy across the diamond, when I meet him one day, I really end up liking him and, and he becomes a friend of mine. But when we take the field, I have no friends on the other team. I'm there to kick your butt for mm. nine innings. And when they when the game's over and, and we're on our own private time, then we can be buddies. But uh, I, I always played that way. I, I don't care if you like me, you dislike me. It doesn't really matter to me. But you're going to respect it, me and you're going to respect how I play the game. And, and I think that's what I'm most proud of in my, in my career is, is showing up to the post. You know, I heard that mm. the other day. I thought it was a really cool saying. I think Eric Caro said it on a, on a simulcast somewhere, and he said, one of the five tools I think should be posting, the ability to post. And I'm proud of that because, you know, I went on the, on the uh, what is now the IL twice in my career. And I played through a lot, and, and I felt like if I can be on that field, I was on that field, and, and I'm proud of that. And uh, that's pretty much what I'm proud of. The memories, uh, the all-star games, the, the, the individual awards, those are all really nice. Uh, but the relationships I, uh, I made, uh, the teammates that, that I've got to play with, those are the special moments that, you know, something that comes to mind. You have certain moments in your career. Going to Yankee Stadium, playing in my first World Series there, that was a special day. One of the things that still stands out in my mind was when we had the All-Star game here and it was Safeco Field back then. We had a bunch of guys make that team. And, and I got to, play, I got to uh, participate in my first home run derby. And I remember when they asked me, I was so excited. You know, the answer was yes before the question came out of the gentleman's mouth that asked me. And it's like, wow, I was like a little kid. I'm, you know, I, you start in Little League and you have Major League dreams. And then those dreams turn into you make your first All-Star game. And, and then all of a sudden you're asked to play in a home run derby and I'm opposite Sammy Sosa. So it was such an honor for me to do it. But to do it at home on a, such a special season... And I remember getting announced to go to home plate. And there's not too many things that really shook me up in baseball. You couldn't really rattle me. I didn't get goosebumps. I didn't get emotional. But the standing ovation I got when I walked to the plate for the home run derby, and it's, it's not a game. It's nothing that's important. It's an exhibition for the fans. But the standing ovation I got kind of moved me that day. And I remember having to kind of gather myself and, and step out of the box and go, wow, this is really cool. That city... They, they turned out for me that day the way I've never heard a crowd cheer me before. And, and it was uh, it was a very cool moment, very appreciative moment. Then I remember thinking, don't screw this up. <laughs> don't, don't embarrass yourself. You know, I think I hit three, and I'm like, all right, I didn't embarrass myself. I might not win. I didn't care. I just wanted to have a decent showing. And uh, that's one of the, to this day, even though it was an exhibition, that's one of the moments in my career that really stand out. You did have a special connection to this fan base, and I can still hear your name echoing around. You had that connection with this crowd. I did, and and I, you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier, I got to play in a few pretty special places. Atlanta was unbelievable. I got to play with, you know, maybe the best pitching staff in the history of our game, Smoltz, Maddox, Glavin. Uh, Chipper Jones was our third baseman. I got to play in, in San Diego with Trevor and, and Tony Gwynn and, and played on some great Reds teams in the mid-90s. And all those cities were very good to me. But there was something different about Seattle. And it was something about that, you know, just me walking down the street, going to lunch, running into a grandma that said, Booney, we love you, you know. <laughs> it was just something different. This was my home. So I love great baseball stories, and I know you have a million of them. Do you have a favorite baseball story that you like to tell? You know, what's near and dear to me and always was was, was my grandpa. 
Mm. He passed away in 2004. And, uh, you know, this is probably a story people have heard a lot of times. But Gramps, uh, I was playing here. It was a, uh, I got a phone call. And they said we, we had to rush Grandpa to the, to the hospital. And I remember we had a day game. And I jumped on a flight after the day game. And I went and saw him. And I showed up at the hospital. And he was bad shape. I mean, they had pumped him th- with a bunch of drugs, and he was bloated, and he didn't look like himself, and he, he couldn't talk. He had to write on a chalkboard. And Gramps, you, you got to know, I got to preface it with, my grandpa's probably one of the proudest men, not only of his generation. I mean, he would he would defend Bob Feller and Ted Williams. He would fight to the death to tell you they're better than the players are now. Um, but he was also the same way about his family. He would protect, and he was so proud to be the patriarch of that Boone family. Fast forward, we'd have debates through the years with Aaron and myself, uh, my dad, and, and Grandpa. And he'd be talking about Feller, and Dad would be talking about Steve Carlton. I'd say, Randy Johnson's better than all of them, guys. No, no, no way Randy's better. You know, those were the cool conversations that we, in a pretty unique way, could have and, and kind of fact-based. But Grandpa would never admit anything about our generation was as good as his. It couldn't be. You know, it couldn't be. And I remember he's sitting, he's sitting in the bed, and he, he's writing on the chalkboard, and he writes something. There was a young pitcher by the name of Jake Peavy coming up with the San Diego Padres, and Gramps had scouted him. And he wrote on the chalkboard, he said, this kid, Jake Peavy's got a chance to be a good player. Yeah, he was right on that. And then he wrote, and you're right. Barry Bonds is better than Ted Williams. And I remember I just started crying because I thought, there's no way that man's going to admit that if he's not going to die. Because he's never going to come back to tell me. He's never going to be able to live this down. So I kind of knew right then that Gramps, you know, this is the end times for Gramps. And, and he admitted that to me. And, uh, you know, it was an emotional time, yeah. but it was kind of a cool time. And I still have that story. I got a million stories, but that's one of my favorites. I can't recommend your podcast enough. Your guest list is pretty impressive. So if people have not checked that out, they should. If you have a recommendation on what's the first one people should listen to, oh, where should they start? There's so many. You know, I've enjoyed so many of them for different reasons. I would say if you're going to listen, you know, the Charles Barkley, the Reggie Jackson, they're really interesting. And, and of course, those are, the, you know, there's some big ticket uh, players on there, you know. But I would say listen to my mom. It was the most popular, you know, from a numbers standpoint. They tell me the numbers. I, I don't even understand in, in, in today's what the numbers are. But my mom was really good. I enjoyed my, you know, the, the people I know the best, my dad. Really was fascinated with the the Mike Sosha mm-hmm. interview because Mike, I always respected his Angels teams and and uh, the way they played the game, the way they ran the bases. And I remember sitting pregame uh, with with our team and our coaching staff and going, guys, I'm telling you, these guys go first to third. They're going to put pressure, constant pressure on the defense. We got to be ready for it, and we need to start playing that way. In 2002, they ended up winning the World Series, mm-hmm. and I think that was the sole thing that ball club did better than anybody else and it was the x factor for them anyway i had mike sochan always respected him as a manager as a from a knowledge standpoint 
And to this day, there's not too many times I can sit down and have a baseball conversation with somebody that can really make me stand up and go, oh, yeah, never thought of it that mm-hmm. way. You know, I, I find it really hard. It's a challenge mm-hmm. to, get, to get me on my heels in a baseball conversation. But Mike Sosia was saying some things. He was comparing the baseball from his generation to, to our era when he was managing against those early 2000s. And we had the American League West, and we were so good with Oakland and Anaheim and, and us. So he compared and contrasted him as a player versus the early 2000 versus 2019 when, when he stepped away from the dugout. And the points he was making were so smart to me from the analytical standpoint. And he made me, he made me on that podcast go, wow, I see things a little differently. That's a great point. I never thought of that. But they were really smart points. I thought it was a really just an informative podcast that that transcended the game of baseball but no the nuances in the game and explained from a different way than than i explain mm-hmm. it because it's you know it's my podcast so you're always hearing my take it was really cool to hear a, a smart thing that made me think so the social thing i love i love tino martinez you know there's not too many that that i haven't enjoyed i started i started doing the podcast and i was a little I was a little reluctant to do it. I don't want to interview people. I've never interviewed people before. On this side of the mic, it's easy getting interviewed, but uh, it kind of challenged me a little bit. I've learned a lot. Uh, you know, I'm getting a little bit better at it, so I can handle myself now. But uh, it's definitely been educational. It's been fun. Um, it's starting to pick up and, and get bigger and bigger, and uh, we'll see what happens. But I'm enjoying myself. Yeah, well, congrats on it. It's spectacular. Thank and uh, the conversations are fun to listen to, so check it out. I could talk to you all day. Thanks for uh, taking the time. We really appreciate you it. You got it. My pleasure. And now the right-hander set, and the 3-2 pitch on the way as Guillen goes, swung on a drill deep into left center field, and that baby will fly away. That's onto the landing out there, and the Mariners have turned this one into a rout. It's 6-1. to one.